Save big on your Memorial Day barbecue, all in the Kroger app. Get half gallons of delicious Kroger milk for $1.29 each. Then get flavorful Tyson Natural Boneless Chicken Breasts for $2.49 a pound, all with your card and a digital coupon. Shop these deals at your local Kroger today, or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details. Think of how much energy it takes and all the different components of your psychological awareness. You have to notice that you're having these feelings. You have to notice that you're withdrawing. You have to notice that you have a desire for this relationship. So there's a lot of pieces that have to really be on board. And then you have to be able to tell yourself, at least a lot of my clients, and historically I have found myself in this position where I've been like, okay, it is worth it to me to risk this, even if it means losing the relationship, because this isn't good for anybody, and to step forward. So think of how many different moving pieces there are. There's all the different pieces of self-awareness, all the different pieces of actual relationship issues, and then choosing not to manage the other person. Welcome to Therapist Uncensored. Building on decades of professional experience, this podcast tackles neurobiology, modern attachment, and more in an honest way that's helpful in healing humans. Your session begins now with Dr. Ann Kelly and Sue Marriott. Hey, everyone. So this is the fourth in our series on disarming human defenses. And this one's packed full of insights, I promise. If you haven't been listening to the others in the series, no worry, it's a standalone. But today, my co-host, Sue Marriott, is talking with this really wonderful colleague of ours and friend, Jeannie Bunker, about aggression, both the destructive ways we use it as a defense, as well as ways we can really harness our healthy, aggressive energy towards powerfully constructive ways to make changes in ourselves, our relationships, even our community. So Jeannie is a prominent psychotherapist in Austin, and she's also a faculty member at the Center for Group Studies in New York City. She teaches both nationally and internationally, and she writes on gender, women's concerns, aggression, on modern analysis. So she is a powerhouse full of information. And what's fun about this is you can tell how well Sue and Jeannie know each other just by the warm and engaging conversation on these really intriguing issues. So I had several light bulb moments and I know you will too. Sue and I are committed to keeping this entire catalog of what we hope is really important information and content to you. We want it free and available to everyone. And we are also dedicated to use our platform to support mental health access to those who are traditionally left out of mainstream healthcare. So we can only do this with your help and with the help of our sponsors. So we will mention that later in our show, but we also do it with our help of our NeuroNerd community where you can not only help us get private ad-free podcast content. So find out more, go to www.therapistuncensored.com slash join. Okay, let's jump in. Welcome to Therapist Uncensored, Jeannie Bunker. Hi, Sue. Very happy to be here. This is going to be a incredibly timely conversation about aggression and women in particular, given this week. We're recording the week after Roe versus Wade was found unconstitutional by the Supreme Court. Yes. And it has definitely stirred folks up. 
Yeah, definitely. I want to get into all kinds of things around healthy aggression, aggression as a defense against intimacy, what it looks like in women specifically. But let's start by hearing a little bit more about you, who you are, and how you got interested in this subject, because you've done panels, workshops, chapters and books, articles. You're the expert on women and aggression. (laughs) Definitely one of them. And I definitely feel passionate about it. When we had talked before, you had asked me, so how did you even think of getting interested in this? And it actually wasn't intentional. It was almost an accident. I was out of school. I had my own practice. I had a full practice. I had full groups. And I wasn't able to pay my bills, and they couldn't figure it out. I was very frugal. It's not like I was a crazy spender. And I started working with someone who was very good at aggression and finances. And I realized it was an issue for me, not being comfortable with my own aggression, ambition, and assertiveness. So I spent a lot of time learning about that so that I could actually have a reasonable life pay my bills, have a practice, have some sanity. And it got me really excited about how we undermine ourselves by not utilizing our aggression, but also how we undermine ourselves by turning it against ourselves. Oh, boy. Amen to that. Yeah. That gets us all into the idea of the narcissistic defense. And like, I don't know how technical to get here, but it's the idea that when we don't feel comfortable expressing our aggression externally, And it doesn't only mean anger. It means a life force and energy that moves us forward. That's aggression. Yeah, I was going to say, let's start with just like, what do we mean by that? What's a basic definition of aggression? That's a great question. Aggression is often thought of as a way of acting out of anger. But the way that we use aggression, I use aggression in, in modern analysis, we use aggression. It's the idea of a life force energy that propels us forward. Now, it can be constructive. It can be destructive. It depends how we choose to utilize it. And sometimes it has unforeseen consequences where there might be something destructive that happens, but it wasn't an act of destructiveness. So it's an energy and it's necessary for us. If we don't have a way to express it, get it out of our bodies to discharge, we will turn it against ourselves. And we see this a lot in folks who grow up in homes that might be abusive or use anger to subjugate family members, where in order to manage the feelings, the terror, the anger, the anxiety that comes in that kind of environment, that person, that child might learn that they can only attack themselves because if they were to attack an adult, it would endanger their lives. Oh, absolutely. It it definitely makes me think of just the concept of identifying with the aggressor so that, you know, yeah, my dad hit me, but it was because I backtalked him. And those are like folks who need that defense to identify with the aggressor are much more likely in adulthood to then do this because they haven't let themselves feel all the feelings you just mentioned of the terror and the helplessness of what they would feel if they weren't putting themselves in the position of the perpetrator, basically. Right. It's also a way for them to feel like they have some agency. Absolutely. Yeah. I actually think of it more that way, usually than aligning with the perpetrator, but it works either way. 
And depending upon which model you're using, you might talk about it differently. Well, kind of the notion being that the vulnerable feelings get pushed down. And then there's a move to use your language again. I said identify with the aggressor, but you said something else, I think. Uh, A couple of things. Well, one is the discharge has to happen, but it happens towards the self because of the terror of what would happen around expressing their aggression. That sometimes it's terror that they're so aggressive they could kill someone and then their own life would be in danger. And all of this is working on a pre-conscious level. You know, it's not like the child decides, okay, I'm going to attack myself. And it ends up creating a false sense of safety in relationships. You know, as long as I don't rock the boat, we're good. And they carry this into adulthood. Like you probably see this a lot with couples. Oh, I I see this in myself. (laughs) (laughs) Well, hey, I I was my own first patient around this, you know. You know the saying that you should be your favorite client (laughs) if you're a therapist. It's true, totally true. I totally love what you're saying about it being pre-conscious, that this is so early on, it's kind of baked in, it's not a thought. This is one of the great things about group is sometimes you can, you don't even hear it yourself, but when you're saying things out loud, other people can begin to help you recognize that you're attacking yourself and help intervene in that. Well, and this links to the idea of learning as implicit or explicit, you know, which you're really familiar with. And I often think of this as that implicit learning, because like you said, you don't even realize you're doing it. It just feels true. That's so true. Yet you would never say the kinds of things that we say to ourselves, to a friend or to, you know, anyone outside. But like for us, we can be the idiot. We can be stupid. And some of it isn't even in words, right? Because I might not think I'm worthless, those words, but it could be a base that I'm just sitting on. Absolutely. Yeah. And, you know, we talk on the show about internal working models and attachment representations. This is exactly what we're getting into here. So as you're walking us through this, there's high distress threat happening. But of course, the child can't recognize even that they're in danger or have any kind of organized way of recognizing that uh, the danger and the bad or the harm is out there. Definitely. So then it flips onto ourselves. We grow up with this identity of there's being something wrong. So it's so interesting to talk about. I hadn't thought of that particular thread related to aggression specifically, but it certainly is. Mm-hmm. Well, it's where we first learn to fear our own energy, you know, and to turn it against ourselves if there is that unsafe environment. I think as a working definition, like just initially, that's helpful. I think it's important to distinguish it from anger. A lot of people confound the two. Anger is an emotion. It's something you feel. There's no requirement to act or discharge or do anything else with it. You just feel anger. That depends on who you are. (laughs) Sometimes, sometimes, again, those things can get so collapsed. Yes. But for our purposes, it's helpful to tease them out a little bit. So that we can talk about aggression. So if we think of anger as something that can energize us or, as you were saying, collapses upon aggression so it all becomes one thing, we can think of still having some choice around how we express that aggression. It's typically thought of as sort of the acting out expression of anger. But actually, it doesn't have to be that impulsive. It doesn't have to be destructive. 
you might feel angry about something. Like we started talking about the overturn of Roe v. Wade. I'm angry about that. A lot of my clients are angry and terrified and all kinds of feelings about it. And yet, we're not going to go out and destroy things. We're going to figure out how to use that aggressive energy, that life-giving energy, to propel us forward and hopefully to work for human rights. It's very interesting because that does bring up that without the anger, because I'm also seeing this part, right? There's this aggression, you know, these things are happening to us, but also there's a feeling of hopelessness. This goes back to what you were saying about it being a life force, that without the anger, you know, there's despair, there's the passivity, there's the giving up. Which is a defense, you know, going back to your original theme. I think that when we go into despair, it's a defense against life. It's a copping out. Like, yes, things are very bleak right now. And I certainly teeter on that edge of despair and hopelessness often around our political world and just how divided we all are. We cannot find common ground. So I do feel, I identify with that despair. And I recognize it as a way to back away from my own accountability and process. Yeah, I think that's so powerful because by using the anger, it gives us the action, it gives us the energy. But to have that energy, then we feel all of these feelings that you don't feel when you're in despair. So that certainly fits with the defense of despair, but also like just this man right now, how do you regulate (laughs) the assaults and the guns and the climate and the you know, all of the incoming aggression, speaking of aggression, right? 18 year olds that walk in and get assault rifles and intentionally murder children. Like, I think a lot of times when people think of aggression, they think of that. Yes, they do think of that. And that is, I consider that a perversion of the idea of aggression. Say more. (laughs) Well, if we only (laughs) think of aggression as people destroying other people, then we get afraid of aggression. And we back off and we're like, oh, I'm not aggressive. That's not me. And then we lose our power and our efficacy moving through the world. We have to dispel this idea that aggression is only violence. This is a silly, trivial example, but maybe it will help people understand. Like, It takes aggression to walk across your kitchen and get yourself a cup of coffee if you want it. Oh, interesting. Like you are having to push against your own inertia. You're having to connect with your own desire, your own energy, your need to take action. Like that's such a a trivial thing, but I think it normalizes it a little more. And it makes me think of that original example you gave of where that you were living a life, but weren't in touch with your capacity to push against or to walk across and get the thing that you want. And that by harnessing healthy aggression, and so let's, I want to hear more about that. And also I want to talk about gender differences and what that looks like. Again, so we're separating out anger is one thing. It's an affect, it's an emotion. It's often tied to story, like a pure feeling is just short. Like you just have the feeling and it kind of dissipates. But then we tell story around it. I can't believe she did that to me again, (laughs) right? The narrative. And so now I'm building up and stoking my anger. But we can do the same thing with despair or sadness. Like as soon as we build that narrative, we are just reinforcing it and, you know, then we're lost. (laughs) Right. Exactly. That's true. And anger just being 
one note on the keyboard of all of these feelings. So just like your point, we can do the story with any of them. But what we're trying to do is separate out and just like hitting the keyboard of just the note of anger, right? Anger, this is how it sounds, this is how it feels, anger, like helping us identify what that even is in our body. Like you said, so many of us are really terrified of it, really afraid of it. And when you say it, you mean aggression, right? Well, I was going slower around like just even the feeling of anger, just the feeling of anger, being able to feel it is also very frightening, I think. But I'm trying to separate that out so that we don't always think about anger when we think about aggression. So yes, those two are often paired. And I think that is the most common way of understanding or sort of the most familiar way of understanding aggression is linking it with anger. But I would rather link it with desire. I was just going to say lust. (laughs) Yes. Well, and not just sexual desire, but desire for all kinds of things. Where do you want to be in your life? What do you want for yourself? You know, can you want to structure your business the way you want to? Can you structure your family the way you want to? So in each of those are still on the keyboard, each of those feelings, desire, whatever it is. So that's a feeling in and of itself that sometimes is hard to feel, even to let ourselves feel desire or know what we need. And then the concept of aggression being tied to helping us address these things that we're coming to understand about ourselves. Is that right? Mm-hmm. And I would throw in one more ingredient that is really important, which is courage. I write about that in my chapter two, that ambition is linked to courage, desire, and aggression. And I think of courage all the time and how brave we have to be to sort of muster the willingness to actually take some action that isn't just destructive, but there might be some emotional or physical risk. Well, it makes me think of even just like boundary setting. Yes, So can you give an example of like some healthy, like courageous, healthy aggression related to knowing that not, not anger, but that I want this person to leave me alone? (laughs) (laughs) Well, I was actually thinking about intimacy and relationships until you said, I want this person to leave me alone. (laughs) Well, well, we can do that. Did well, you have someone in mind soon? Should we talk? <laughs> no, uh, just everyone. No, um, so our listeners probably know if you've heard the podcast very long that I tend towards the more avoidant dismissive side. So she just totally caught me on that one versus with the idea of desire, also the aggression to go after that closeness or to take that risk or to you know make the move or whatever it is. I think one of the things I was channeling with the want this person leave me alone was this idea of women and aggression and how that we can cover that up and use niceness when someone's being aggressive with us and then also get distorted with like a healthy boundary or a normal, why are you so mean? Or why don't, you know, I just said you were pretty, right? And then it becomes about her aggression. I'm interested and I know that you have written some about women and aggression specifically and how complicated it is to be able to harness. Right. Well, it's super complicated because of misogyny, internalized and in the patriarchy. Like it's every level of life we have to deal with misogyny, including in ourselves. Like how many women feel guilty when they say no to someone who shows sexual interest or who is just like, 
oh, what a pretty, why don't you smile? Why aren't you smiling? Like that is one of the most common emotional assaults and intrusions that women experience. I love you calling it that. And that's one of the benefits of sorting out these differences between desire, anger, aggression. Like, no, that's an assault. That's not kindness. No, it's because they want something. Like they want you to smile for their pleasure. They're not interested in your well-being. They're not like, hey, you're not smiling. Are you all right? Do you need something? They're like, oh, you should smile. You have a beautiful smile. I'll feel good if you smile. Oh, gives me the chills. I almost got <laughs> really know. vulgar just then, but I cut myself. <laughs> wait, wait, wait. This is being recorded. I'm like, <laughs> no, vul- vul- vulgar's okay. There's no FCC or anything on this. So <laughs> speak free. Remember, it's uncensored. You can uncensor yourself. Right. <laughs> so healthy aggression. So keep going. Say more about like, even like using vulgar or playing off this idea of being intruded upon by someone's desire. Well, if we use this example that we've just been talking about, someone says, hey, why aren't you smiling? You should smile. And then the woman might say, no, leave me alone. I'm in my own space or just saying, bug off, whatever, and carrying on. And if there's that pursuit, I use the word assault really specifically and intentionally because there is a way that it sort of attacks our personal space when someone comments on our body, whether it's our smile, our breasts, our body in any other sexual way. There's a way that women's bodies get to be commented on in any setting by anyone, and that's assaultive. And the more we can stand up and say, you don't get to talk to me about my body. I didn't ask your opinion. We're not in that kind of relationship. Until we can have that as more normative, we're going to keep dealing with being assaulted in these ways. Okay, so then the woman is able to say that. And then that backlash, probably internally too, but also societally for sure. Oh, yeah, you're being a bitch, you know, why are you being such an asshole? Like, and really, the, the subtext is, I want you to suck my dick. You know, that was the vulgarity I was going to, I censored myself with. That's the the compulsion. It's like, you are here to take care of me. Right. You know, whatever that means. And that's just one level of the misogyny. So let's imagine a listener out there that has done this a bunch of times, like commented on someone's smile or said, hey, you know, and they're saying right now, wait a minute, I was just being nice. It's just being nice. Like, what's up with this that everybody gets so mad because I compliment them? Well, I would ask you to do some soul searching, listener out there. Do some soul searching about what's motivating you to make that comment. Are you actually interested in that woman's well-being? Or is there something you're seeking for yourself? Yeah, because it makes me uncomfortable if she's not smiling. And so I want her to smile so I feel better. Right. But then the next question will be, so what about that makes you uncomfortable? Like what in you do you have to deal with to be able to tolerate someone else's humanity? And much easier just to say smile. (laughs) Yeah. But that's also assaultive. No one likes to be told how they feel or how they should be. We don't do that to men. We do that to women. I think we do it to people who are non-binary. 
or not cisgendered because people are uncomfortable and they make comments like, oh, are you, why don't you smile? It's okay. You're doing all right. But it's so controlling. Like I can feel myself getting hot just talking about it. Yeah, no, me too. It's just like I said earlier, I was like, it gives me the willies a little bit. Let's do aggression more where you were going, which is uh, towards <laughs> closeness and connection. <laughs> right, right. <laughs> Sorry, Sue. I just went with you there. You went with me, right. <laughs> so, and, you know, there's a lot of listeners that are going to totally identify. I mean, believe me, I know that this is resonating. And I also was imagining it getting people's backs up, which is why I wanted to kind of go through like, okay, now hold on a minute. And your instruction, which is one, do your soul searching. And then as you find your need and your discomfort to do more soul searching, which is like, what's that about? And can you expand your window of tolerance to handle your discomfort, which in a sense is another form of aggression, but in a healthy way, like stopping yourself, setting your own boundaries of your impulse to act and being able to hold. Would that be an example of aggression, of a healthy use of aggression? I think so. I think setting boundaries with yourself is, is okay to call that aggression. If we say that attacking yourself is misguided aggression then or destructive aggression, why not? Yeah. But I was thinking like that takes me into a lot of different parts. So I'm going to try to wrangle myself and focus on what you asked about intimacy also. So we were talking about courage, aggression, and desire. So if you're in a relationship a friendship, marriage, romantic, not, whatever. And there's something that's going on that's not working. A lot of times we just go along. You know, we're just sort of like, okay, well, it's not that bad, you know. Yeah, I, I don't want to hurt their so feelings. But then if we don't hurt their feelings, if we use that as our guiding light, if you will, to not hurt someone's feelings, then we end up pulling away. We're not as intimate. We're not as available. There's not as much life or vitality in that relationship. And the relationship is damaged. The other person will experience it even if they're not conscious of it. So the, um, the aggressive, courageous, full of desire way of dealing it with it would be to step into that discomfort and that fear of hurting their feelings and be able to say, hey, I need to talk to you. This isn't working. I'm anxious telling you about it, but our relationship is important enough that I'm willing to risk it. I mean, that's a very small kind of gentle, intimate example, but think of all the pieces that go into telling the truth to someone you care about in the service of the relationship. Yeah, because this idea of, oh, well, it'll make them uncomfortable or it'll hurt their feelings. It's like, no, I can't bear <laughs> because it's the same thing. If I study, why do I have to, why am I worrying about their feelings? And so if I do hurt their feelings, what does that mean to me? So it's kind of, I guess, the same thing. So that as we do that work around, like, I think what you were just saying is it compromises. Okay, so I can think that I'm not hurting their feelings, give something up in the relationship. And then the relationship is... Even on a mini, like an M-I-N-I level, compromised. And then you times that by how many things. And so you said there are a lot, a lot goes into it, the example you gave of moving toward and saying those things. Can you say a little bit more about what you mean by a lot goes into it? Well, think of how much energy it takes 
and all the different components of your psychological awareness. You have to notice that you're having these feelings. You have to notice that you're withdrawing. You have to notice that you have a desire for this relationship. So there's a lot of pieces that have to really be on board. And then you have to be able to tell yourself, at least a lot of my clients, and historically I have found myself in this position where I've been like, okay, it is worth it to me to risk this, even if it means losing the relationship, because this isn't good for anybody, and to step forward. So think of how many different moving pieces there are. There's all the different pieces of self-awareness, all the different pieces of actual relationship issues, and then choosing not to manage the other person. Well, you're trusting the other person to manage themselves. Well, sometimes you can't get there though, right? So you have to trust yourself to be okay, even if they can't manage themselves. All right. All right. That's good. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, ideally, we can trust the others, certainly. (laughs) Well, I kind of just like that language, but I like what you did with it more. The idea of it's belittling to the other person to use them for us not to be courageous and say the truth. You're holding them in higher esteem, in a sense, to make that risk. But again, I like what you're saying. It's like, it's not about that. Like they can collapse or get upset or get angry or what have you. And it's more of you're trusting yourself to be able to manage their feelings as you tell your truth. Right. Manage yourself in the face of their feelings. That's right. In the face of their feelings. The other thing about your example, as far as the different pieces is like, you had all those things that added up, but then also you had your hand out like you were aware of working to co-regulate the other person. You know, you're not just walking around telling your truth. You know what I mean? That shirt looks terrible. (laughs) (laughs) Well, that's where we get into the difference between, you know, creative and constructive versus destructive expression of aggression. I like to think of it as if I'm going to be aggressive in a relationship, I want to hold that relationship in my mind and hold that person in my mind. Like, I don't want to intentionally do damage or even just thoughtlessly do damage. I want to remember, oh, I care about this person. I'm invested in loving this person. So I'm going to say this as skillfully as I can and still tell the truth. That's beautiful. And that's going to so much increase the chance of that going well. that They're going to feel your safety they're going to feel that they're being held, even if it's a little embarrassing, whatever the information is, or whatever it is that makes it hard to hear, that you're really have your hand out both, you know, so I'm thinking like your hands on your heart, like you're taking care of yourself and you're taking care of the other person at the same time, if they'll let you. Another thing that I think of is those moments of do I say this, do I bring this up or not? And I really like how you said, like, I'm holding the relationship in mind. Is this relationship worth investing in the vitality of it in a sense but the way that my mind goes is it's like if we're going to have a fight (laughs) I'd rather have this fight than that fight (laughs) meaning (laughs) uh, meaning the truth is out there whatever the truth is and if that makes us uncomfortable that's a better I've still moved the ball in the direction of intimacy and vitality because now we're it's a two-party system jumbling around you know I think Brene Brown talks about rumbling rumbling with the right thing versus like you said, if I withdraw or whatever, it's a different kind of danger for the relationship, but they don't get the benefit of knowing, of having the data to know what's happening. 
you've essentially kicked them out of the relationship and decided you're just going to do it by yourself. Mm, Right. And that's, you know, going to attachment, like the folks, those of us who sort of learned to count on ourselves more than assuming that people are going to be there for us. It's almost like it doesn't occur that, oh, this is actually useful information for the person and relationship bonding versus just a burden or trouble or, you know, why drag them into this? I can handle it. Right. Historically, we had to handle it, right? Yeah. It wasn't an option to do it any other way. So of course we go there. But in the new secure functioning relationships that we're trying to to develop, (laughs) we're nudging ourselves towards. We can um, do it. it. (laughs) Yes. It looks like these great examples of bringing in the aggression. Can we talk about aggression as the receiver? Like receiving feedback is hard. It's super vulnerable. And it occurred to me that aggression might be helpful. Like thinking in terms of like harnessing our aggression for what we want as a receiver might be helpful. I hadn't thought of it exactly like that, but I like that idea, Sue. What comes to my mind is a certain kind of sturdiness and willingness to hold on to yourself, sort of no matter what the other person is saying, and be like, okay, I am going to aggressively hold on to myself. I'm going to invite whatever they're saying into this neutral area in between us before I decide how to or what to take it in. I think it requires us to be less reactive and more considering of the feelings. We might instantly feel angry. We might instantly feel scared or hurt. All of that is fine. And we can even put that into words and we can still consider what's being offered to us informationally. But yeah, I like that idea that it's aggressive energy to really claim yourself. Like I'm okay. Yeah, which is part, I think, of what you're saying is it's a resource. It's a resource that we've denied ourselves and it has crazy stories about culturally and probably within our own family systems. So I think part of your work is like, let's free that back up and uh, reclaim healthy aggression. And also to know it's going to be messy a little bit, you know, we're not going to come out of the gate being all totally competent and like, oh, I can do aggression no matter where I am, no matter what I'm doing. Like, no, we're going to be messy and we'll have to repair and we have to figure out how to continue to risk. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. You know, one of the things that can go wrong with this is so partners approaching, maybe unskilled, right? Maybe they haven't heard this episode, so they're very unskilled. (laughs) (laughs) But so as the receiver... If you go under the table, in a sense, and just go into that, again, the story, I guess, but the fear of like, the other person's aggression is going to look gigantic and big and scary and kind of even monstrous versus if I can, as the receiver, hold myself into this kind of more adult, wise mind place, not go under the table, but it's think it feels aggressive to not do that. It feels like you have to push yourself back into engagement. But from that place, you're standing, and now you're, it's just two people standing. You don't have a monstrous, aggressive person and a scared person under the table. You have two people that are having feelings and making actions towards one another, you know, face-to-face. And that's a lot less scary. So that just occurs to me around the harnessing aggression as a resource. Yeah, and I love the way you describe that, like pushing yourself up to engagement. Like it takes that sort of energy and intention 
all that consciousness we talked about that it takes to express your aggression. I think we're fleshing out more all of the consciousness that it takes to receive it and to be able to engage. Let's do another scenario where somebody's coming at you, but they are absolutely not skilled. They are overshooting their aggression. It's an assault. It's they're giving you feedback you didn't ask for. You know what I mean? Like your first reaction would be back on your heels or to be, you know, so when you're faced with aggression, how to harness it and use it in a way that, you know, that we're promoting right now. Well, if it's a relationship that matters and you want to stay engaged with the person and you're not just saying F off, it's a different thing. Like it's a different set of skills, right? So I'm going with the assumption that this person's coming at me with really unskilled aggression, but it's someone I care about. Yeah. Perfect. So we've got a relationship. So I'll notice that I feel angry and scared and hurt. Maybe, maybe all of those things. And hopefully if I can use my own aggression and energy to hold on to myself, I'll be able to say, Hey, I, I hear that you have a lot happening. Can we go slower? Like I, I can't take it all in right now. And I really want to be with you in this. And so then they talk over you. So again, can you slow down? So what would they do then soon? Like, let's keep going with this. Let's just say that they feel your boundary, which threatens them. So then they really, they're like, but I'm not finished. And I hear that, but if you don't slow down, I'm not going to engage with you. I'm interested, but I'm not interested in receiving your assault. So internally, I don't know if y'all could hear the energy difference there. That's actually what, that was, (laughs) no, it was what I was going for. It was totally what I was going for is that like, you can use your big girl voice. You can use your big girl voice. That's right. Because sometimes we have to match it in order to de-escalate it, not to have it blow up. That's not the idea. And your words were a beautiful example of your force increased just a little bit because I wasn't listening and I was dysregulated and doing too much. But your words, that's to me what makes the big difference is your words were, I want to hear you. You've got to slow down. It was, something, it was something connecting. I don't even remember what the words were, but they were good. So I think that's just a, such a great example of like, there's the difference between the force of the energy and being able to harness it and be on behalf of the relationship. And on behalf of yourself. Like, yeah. We're not into sacrificing ourselves here. So is there anything just from your own personal journey, like other examples or the other thing that I am interested in is this notion of when I think of patriarchy, I don't think of it just gendered, just men, you know, the war between the sexes. I really think of it as a power structure. And there's the power over versus the power with. Men, biologically born men, those who identify as male as they go, there's a different socialization specifically around aggression than there is when um, call ourselves female. Would you speak a little bit to that? Because I think that that's certainly timely. Well, I think, Sue, we've been talking about it in a lot of different ways already in that, you know, women are supposed to be compliant and pleasing and be concerned with pretty much everyone else's needs except our own, and that that's a part of thwarting our own aggression. An example that comes to mind is sort of, you know, the classic research that's been done about who will apply for what jobs. I wish I could remember the citation. I can't right now. But how men will look at job opportunities and they will be like, okay, I can do like 70% of this. I'm going to apply. 
Whereas women will look at jobs and unless they meet it like 110%, they feel they're not qualified. And to me, that's sort of a classic difference between the genders, you know, the socialization around what you're entitled to shoot for and what's good enough versus, yeah, I can do that or I can learn it. It's fine. You know, there's such a different attitude in that. Well, and then I'm also thinking about all the safe men that are responding to these things, um, but they were still socialized in this way. So I don't know if there's anything for us to say about that, but like using healthy aggression on the behalf of women, on behalf of, I don't know what that, it's not a very well-formed question, but I was just thinking in terms of partly separating out that it's not male versus female, but also- It's also internalized. Yeah. I guess that's part of what I mean is, but if you've been raised not to internalize the shame around it and that you're supposed to be, as a matter of fact, you're supposed to make a move because otherwise she'll think you're a wimp or that she'll think you're whatever. So there's a different script running. So I was just thinking about the benefit of these millions of bodies out there that have been, have more entitlement to healthy aggression like how can we how can we turn that into a force for good for us for well, it's not just women it's for society you know what I mean it's like you don't really hear the aggression as a protective force from a social standpoint all of these bodies that have this I won't say a healthier but a more entitled sense to what they want and we have this more patriarchal force that's taking power away, taking power away, taking power away in all these different ways. But for the safe men, the safe men that have this history of entitlement to what they want, it's like, God, I guess I was just sort of thinking, how do we mobilize that on our behalf, you know? So when you say safe men, though, what do you mean? Would you identify as safe men, just generally speaking? What does that mean? Just, yeah, generally speaking, it would be men that are outside, that are resisting the patriarchy, you know, that want to get out of that power structure that is based just on their physicality, which is nonsensical. You're talking about allyship in a lot of ways. Like, how do we mobilize people who aren't struggling in the same ways to help this change, this societal change happen. And it reminds me of a lot of my work with the LGBTQ community throughout the last, you know, 40 years and just what that looks like as part of that community and as finding allies and being an activist and how do we work together. I think it applies to my role as a white person, how can I be a good ally in the face of racism and white supremacy? And how can I use my privilege? And I, I think that's kind of what you were getting at. Like, how do we help folks who have privilege actually use it effectively to create change on every level of society? That's beautiful. <laughs> you helped me get there, but I'm totally with you. I'm totally with you. I mean, when we used to do advocacy, you know, at the Capitol, you know, the straight people would always have more access. Like the children of gay couples, as their boys grew up and became men, all of a sudden they're getting access because there, here's the cis white male that will get the meeting with the congressional person that 
all the people in strollers and that are in these couples, you know, we do not get access. So yes, I'm agreeing with you. I'm with you. So it's allyship and using our privilege for good instead of evil. Yep. We certainly try to do that here in a number of different ways. So that actually even just helps me think in terms of what I'm even meaning about these men that could be on our side, that could resist these arcane, you know, oppressive structures and policies that literally injure everybody, not just women, for sure. That's right. Yeah. It injures everybody. Mm -hmm. Well, I was thinking about the men that are having vasectomies. Oh, I know. I just read an article in the Times this morning about how many men have now signed up to get vasectomies because of this. Like, it's remarkable. And I I mean, it's, it's both heartbreaking and heartening. Like, it's that weird mixture of we're all being oppressed, and that is heartbreaking, how it's affecting all of us. And then it's also heartening to see the proactivity of these men. Like, they're going to go and they're being accountable. Yeah. It's like now it's a we problem, not a their problem or just our problem for sure. It's like that's really being in it with us. Which is, I think, a new thing for women and men and everyone who's affected by a reproductive justice. Like it is becoming more and more of a we thing instead of a that's just you. Oh, you could get pregnant, then that's just you. Oh, you want to start a family, that's just you. It's much more understood as a systemic thing. So a few months ago, you had someone else on your show, Loretta Ross. I think she was in January, actually. And I was totally excited by that interview and have sought out every bit of writing I can of hers. And she has a book called Reproductive Justice. It's like an introduction to the ideas. And she co-wrote it with someone whose name I can't remember right now. But the basic thrust with so much nuance and beauty in it is that reproductive rights are human rights. And they affect every one of us. And it seems like she wrote this several years ago. It seems like we're finally catching on a little bit. You know, it's interesting that you bring that podcast up because the whole notion of that had to do with aggression. It had to do with managing aggression, right? Like it was the calling in, the call out culture. And part of one of the points she made, and this is just exactly what we're talking about today, Jeannie, is that some of the issues she was having is that some of the advocates would go right to shame and want to cut people off and call people out, you know, and all these things and didn't have the gradation of... Now, some people, some corporations would have you, yes, that's the appropriate thing. But this idea of being able to harness, like, you know, for someone who's just misinformed, that you don't come at them, you know, like, oh, you have a Black Lives Matter, but that's, you don't really believe it, and no, 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 right? It's like overshooting the, you know, I think her point was like that you can tie, we didn't use this language, but to titrate the aggression, but they're aggressively putting something out, saying something to the world, and then if somebody has a problem with that, they're kind of the idea of matching instead of just going with what your feeling is and telling them that they're performative or what have you. Right. But if we think of call-out culture, too, we can think of that as a defense, a defense against that vulnerability of actually being in conversation with someone. It's a defense against our own shame. Like if we participate in call-out culture, we're inserting our shame into someone else. You know, I'm not like that. You take my shame too. You're a terrible person. How can you even think that? So call out culture is like this manifest defense against 
being in a relationship. And all the stuff that we haven't looked at, that then we want to then stamp out in the world, but certainly haven't necessarily done our own, what did you say, bearing of the soul? And I'm happy to tie that back into the series that we're doing around defense and really trying to keep exploring and learning more about how we unintentionally do things to push people away in close relationships. Is there anything else that we didn't get to that you want to say around key takeaways or action steps for anybody? No, I think we covered the key takeaways of separating out anger from aggression to understanding that the ways we attack ourselves are misguided expressions of aggression to understand that to move forward and to have our ambition intact requires courage and aggression and desire to allow ourselves to work with all of that, be brave, be heartfelt, hold other people, you know, that relationship in mind when you're doing these courageous acts. Yeah. Now, if people wanted to contact you and find out more or check out your articles or your chapters, how would they reach you? Go to my website, bunkertherapy.com. Bunker Therapy. That's such a great name. <laughs> I created that like a decade ago. That know? is so awesome. I'm like, okay, Bunker Therapy. <laughs> I'm sorry. Go ahead. BunkerTherapy.com. They could email me at genielbunker at gmail.com or they can call my office at 512-328-3947. I'm happy to talk with whomever wants to talk about the stuff that I love. It's so generous. There's a ton of resources in the show notes. There are all of the links that she just mentioned will be in the show notes. We're super happy to continue this series on disarming human defenses. Thank you very much for listening. Thank you, Jeannie Bunker, very much for being here. And we'll see you around the bend. Thank you, Sue. Uncensored is Ann Kelly and Sue Marriott. This podcast is edited by Jack Anderson. It's lunchtime at Tim Hortons, and we're serving up a special deal just for you. Our new $5.99 lunch deal includes your choice of any lunch sandwich and a side of crunchy kettle chips. Because what's lunch without a little crunch? And the sandwich choice is all yours. Like a ham and Swiss, Chipotle chicken wrap, BLT, and more. Made to order just the way you like it. Tim Hortons' new lunch deal. Simple, delicious, and just $5.99. Now that's a good deal. Only at your neighborhood Tim's. U.S. only. Price and participation vary. Terms apply.